Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta, where we are committed to changing lives with faith, hope, and love. We're so glad you are here. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Listen for the word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, and they saw no one with him anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain... He ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word of the Lord. Gracious God, giver of all good things, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all today on this Theological Education Sunday. I am, of course, honored to be the theologian in residence here at First Presbyterian Church, but I am also the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary down in Decatur, Georgia, and I am so glad to continue the long relationship between Columbia and First Pres uh, here in Marietta. Pastors Joe Evans, Cassie Waits, Michael Sanchez, uh, Reverend Paul Sherwood, uh, Reverend Pem Cooley, uh, many other people, uh, Jim Goodlett, who serves in the Board of Trustees. We have so many relationships here between Columbia uh, and First Press, even in this room right now, and Joe Evans uh, following via satellite. Um, all, there are so many connections here that it is really astounding. We are uh, grateful, Columbia, uh, that we have such a good friend in First Press. So if you're interested in seminary, anyone following here in this room or live uh, on the internet, or if you know someone who is or someone who you think should be interested in seminary, please let me know, and I'd love to hear your story, and I'd love to share ours as well. One of the things we like to spend time doing at Columbia Theological Seminary is discerning a call. That is, trying to listen hard to what God is calling us to do. And our text today is all about God's call, about what it means for our lives. But let me start here, backing up a little bit. Several summers ago, well before global travel had ground to a halt, and it was perfectly normal to get on an airplane, something I'll never take for granted again, I had an amazing experience. I got to spend a month in South Korea. I went as a representative of Columbia Theological Seminary, along with Dr. Kevin Park, the director of our Advanced Professional Degrees program, and I went there to teach a course on the Psalms for a continuing education program for Presbyterian pastors. 
I had a wonderful trip. I loved it. Seoul, the capital city, is bustling with energy. It's overflowing with history and packed with delicious food in every nook and cranny of the city. And by the time I left, that meant every nook and cranny of my stomach as well. You know, I have wanted to visit Korea for a long time, ever since I was a little boy. I remember looking at Korea on a map for the very first time that I had ever noticed it when I was six years old. And I noticed how far away it was from Denver, Colorado, where I lived at the time. I was looking at that map because my mother and father had just told me that our family would be adopting a baby girl from an orphanage in Seoul, the capital of South Korea. They told me that my older brother and I were going to have a new baby sister, and her name was Amanda. I also remember sometime later standing with my family in a particular gate of the little Stapleton Airport in Denver, long before DIA, waiting for a flight to arrive from Seattle with my new sister on board. I remember seeing the first people walking off the plane. I remember standing on tiptoes and looking for any little baby that might pop out. I remember a stewardess walked out holding her. I remember holding her myself for the first time, sitting in one of those uncomfortable airplane chairs in the airport, my mother and father teaching me to cradle her head. It was a wonderful day, and every day since, Amanda has been a blessing to our family. So, it was an emotional experience when we met Amanda and I at the airport in South Korea. For me, it was my first time visiting the birthplace of my sister, and for Amanda, it was her first time back in Korea since she was about four months old. I had worked it out so that I had a week of time off between two different parts of the course I was teaching and invited Amanda to come and stay with me. So I had been teaching my class for about a week before Amanda showed up. She flew into Incheon Airport in Korea, where I yet again was waiting to pick her up. I remember standing on my tiptoes and looking out to see her pop out of the door. And I was there to see her and hug her as she touched Korean soil again, 29 years later. She was shaking with anticipation and more than a little bit of fear, since she wasn't quite sure what to expect. And this moment of homecoming was complicated. Amanda's a Korean-American, but she was really worried that she wouldn't be accepted as really, truly Korean by Korean people she would meet on this trip. I'm glad to report that Amanda had an amazing time. She's fallen in love with Korea. She loved every moment of her stay. She was welcomed by the families of the pastors I was working with, other members of the church. She had a homestay with a family, and even the next year, when she and her husband took their honeymoon, they went back to Seoul and spent time with all of the families that they had met, and Amanda stayed in touch with them ever since. She loves returning to favorite spots in her city with her new friends. Since our trip, I've had some opportunities to speak with Amanda about her experience. It was fascinating to hear her express a feeling of relief to be in a place where, for the first time she said in her life, that she was surrounded by people who looked like her. She didn't stand out. She said that she felt as though she was simply a person instead of an Asian woman, which is how she feels in Washington, D.C., where she lives. Until, of course, she spoke or was addressed by someone when she was in Seoul, then it quickly became clear that she was a Korean-American who didn't know Korean. So she asked me when we were on the trip, she said, where, where do I actually fit? Amanda's identity is complex in a way that I just can't fully experience, at least in my own context. She says that she feels complicated emotions and at times tension when different parts of her identity feel pulled in multiple directions. 
Amanda told me about her fear when she stepped off of her flight and arrived in Seoul. She was wondering to herself, what would this place be like? Would she be treated as strange or exotic or untrustworthy because of her Americanness? What would people think when she introduced her enormous white American brother standing next to her? People with complex identities often feel something like this inner tension. At Columbia Theological Seminary, just like here at First Presbyterian Church, people are feeling tensions all the time. Tensions between tradition and innovation, between global citizenship and national identity, between family and work, between their Christian identity and the culture that surrounds them. We feel tensions between who others think we are and who we really are inside. Tensions between what we know to be right and true and good and what's expected of us. Tensions between our desires to include others and our needs to ensure the safety of those in our care. Our new students who are just in their second week of Columbia Theological Seminary, our incoming students, might find themselves sitting in my Hebrew class wondering, what did I just get myself into? Who are these people around me? Who's this guy talking to me? Who am I? What am I going to be doing in five years? Where will I be? Why did I leave everything that I know, everything that made me me to come to this place? So right now, these students are in a, a space where they've left something of their old selves behind, and they're just beginning to chart a new identity, one that includes their seminary education. I'm sure here in Marietta, the new high school students, the new college students, those who have recently moved or moved jobs, which is like two-thirds of the country at this point, right? Those who have gone through all sorts of life transitions over this past year, or I guess just anybody who's lived in the midst of this earth-shaking pandemic that continues to upend our expectations of security and comfort, we, all of us, are wondering about who we really are, what are we really doing here, what are we supposed to be doing? And if we're honest, we are always in the process of leaving behind an old self and stepping out into something new and different. There are tensions about our identities that we all face, some of us more acutely than others. So today we read a biblical text that deals with this exact same problem. Our story in Exodus 3 begins with Moses shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro way out in Midian. But wait, why is Moses in a desert wasteland working for a Midianite man who just became his dad? Remember, just back up a bit. Moses was born to an enslaved Hebrew woman in Egypt, but then was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So he grows up as a Hebrew boy, yet was raised in the royal house of Egypt. So what is he, Egyptian or Hebrew? Was he Pharaoh's grandson, Lord of Egypt, or is he a descendant of Levi of the house of Israel? And then one day, of course, Moses decides to defend his Hebrew kinsfolk from a harsh Egyptian taskmaster. He fights with and ends up killing the Egyptian. And so he tried to show his solidarity with his enslaved Hebrew brethren. But the Hebrews drove him out of town, complaining that this posh son of Pharaoh was trying to befriend them by getting them into trouble with the law. And they didn't want an Egyptian like that hanging around. And then when Moses heard Pharaoh heard that Moses turned on the Egyptians. He put up wanted posters all over town. So Moses runs away into the wilderness, into the scrub land of Midian, a punishing desert wasteland. At that point, Moses has no one in his life who accepts him. So who is he, really? Soon, Moses stumbles upon the daughters of the priest of Midian at an oasis, where they're attacked by a group of shepherds. Moses jumps to their defense, 
And the grateful women bring Moses to their father. And the Midianite women say in Exodus chapter 2, verse 19, they say, an Egyptian, pointing to Moses, helped us against the shepherds. Moses is all alone. The Hebrews don't want him. The Egyptians don't want him. The Midianites think he's an Egyptian. Have you ever felt like this? Well, you've got a friend in Moses. So without a better option, Moses decides to settle down with these folks, the Midianites, where at least he knows he's an outsider. He soon marries a Midianite woman, Zipporah, and they have a son, and Moses names his son Wandering Alien. That's the kid's name. In Exodus 2.22, after he names his child, Moses says, because I've been an alien residing in a foreign land. It's true of his stay in Midian, he's a foreigner there, but really it's true of his entire life. The Hebrews weren't at home in Egypt when he was born. He was never at home with the Egyptians, at least fully. And now he's certainly not at home in the wilderness with the nomadic tribe. So when we pick up with Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, we learn that Moses had become a desert shepherd. And he takes his sheep, according to the Bible, beyond the wilderness. Beyond the wilderness? What's out there? <laughs> This is not a comfortable nature hike that Moses is on. It's a deep dive into a terrifying place of desolate emptiness. Why does he go beyond the wilderness? It's like the story tries to tell us that Moses is so marginal that he's almost completely disappeared from the world. And I know that there are people who feel like this. Beyond the wilderness. People, perhaps even in this room, are feeling like this today. It's a place of desolation and loneliness, a chaotic and disorienting place. Feels like a place that God has abandoned. There often seems to be little hope when you're beyond the wilderness. And yet, just as God looked with compassion on the Israelites in their groaning under Pharaoh, God takes care of Moses in this hour of need, and not from far away, but right up close. It seems that God's especially attentive to those who groan in the wilderness. Moses wanders unknowingly to the foot of the mountain of God. That's right, beyond the wilderness, that's where God lives. That's God's home. God's mountain home is precisely in the desolate, barren, perilous place. God lives with those who are in such spaces. Beyond the wilderness, God appeared to Moses. So in Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, the narrator uses the Hebrew word for the verb to see. That's the Hebrew word ra'ah. Six times in quick succession, over and over again. The angel of the Lord was seen by Moses. Moses saw the bush. Moses said, I must turn aside to see this great sight. The Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see. I think this repetition makes an important point. What does Moses look like to people who see him. What does his appearance communicate about his identity? Is he a Hebrew? Is he an Egyptian? Is he a Midianite? Is he the son of an enslaved person? Is he a priestly descendant? Is he a prince, a shepherd, a nomad, a murderer? Do you sometimes wonder the same thing about yourself? What am I? What do people really see when they see me? What do I see when I look at myself? And more importantly, what does Moses look like to God? What does God see when God sees him. If I am honest with myself, I certainly wonder what God sees when God sees me. Who am I really in God's eyes? What about my identity is actually important to God? 
When God appears to Moses, God says something that begins to answer these questions. God says in Exodus 3, verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the God of your dad, your family. You've got a family, Moses. The Hebrew people may not really accept Moses as one of their own, but God does. God includes Moses not only as a Hebrew, but as part of the long story of the relationship that God has been building with the ancestors, struggling with, really, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God reminds Moses that he really does belong. But then, in order to help Moses discover his true identity, God gives Moses a mission. God tells Moses that God has heard the cry of the Hebrew people, and God tells Moses to bring the people out from Pharaoh's oppression. And this I'm going to be honest, this seems like a pretty big task for someone whose life up to this point has been nothing but a succession of total failures. But Moses' response in verse 11 asks us to think about this core problem of Moses' life that he's been struggling with since the day he was born. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? Moses has been asking this question every day. Who am I really? And what would you say? Who is he? God's response in verse 12 is, unfortunately, not very clear. Moses probably wants an answer. What are you? Who are you? Just tell me. God responds with this. It's in verse 12. I'll be with you. I will be with you. Who am I? And the answer is, I will be with you. My first impression is that this is not a very helpful answer. But if you think about it for a minute, I think it's the only answer that really makes sense to a person like Moses. Who am I? Well, if you ask this about me, I could start by listing stuff. Well, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a professor, I'm a writer, I'm a mandolinist, I'm a pork shoulder smoker, so on and so forth. But I could say I'm an American, I'm a Christian, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm an Episcopalian. I could say I'm a nice person. I could say I'm, actually, I could say I'm more honest, and I could say I'm a procrastinator, and I'm crabby sometimes, and uh, I think about myself more than I really think about anybody else. But none of these things are the important stuff. Who am I, really? The answer that God gives is, I will be with you. I am someone that God is with. So who are you really? God is with you. You're someone that God is with. Perhaps most importantly, God is with me and you and all of us on a mission. That same mission that God gave to Moses long ago to bring the oppressed into a land of justice and peace. We're still in the process of living this out thousands of years later. A mission to bring hope to those who are in desolate spaces by being with them. A mission to create communities of abundant love where anxious fear once reigned. That's our identity. And in Exodus 3, verse 12, God says that the true sign of God's presence will be this. One day, the people are going to worship together on the mountain. It's not a great sign if you think about it. Moses says, who, who am I? How am I going to do this stuff? And God says, hey, I'll give you a sign. After you do the things that I'm telling you to do that take a lot of courage, then you're going to worship together. That's the sign. Ta-da! Well, but Moses has even another question. In verse 13, Moses wonders what to say if the people ask for God's name. What God is this that sends Moses? Who are you, Moses wants to say? What is God's identity? 
If Moses is the one whom God is with, well, then who's the God who's with Moses? Perhaps we want God to be very clear in this point. We want something that you can, like, print, you know, in a book or something. Some very clear statements, maybe rules, maybe something you can cross-stitch and keep on your, you know, above, above your, your, your couch at home or something. I don't know. Something that you could actually memorize. I don't know. But God doesn't give us really anything tangible. Who is this God that sends Moses? Who is God? Well, God's answer is, again, pretty confusing. In many English translations, the answer is, I am who I am. Tell the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, I promise not to do this every time I talk to you, but I'm going to pull rank a little bit and say, um, you know, I teach Hebrew, I'm a biblical scholar, so I can do this, but it doesn't say that. I'm sorry, it never said that. I'll prove it to you. Uh, if you want to take my Hebrew class, feel free. Uh, you know, we, we'll get into some, some more detail. But there's no way to say I am in Hebrew. It doesn't exist. There's no word for it. In Hebrew, you can say I was, and you can say I will be, but there's no word for I am. If you want to say I am hungry in Hebrew, you say I hungry. You leave out the present tense of the verb to be. You don't put it in. If you want to say I am old in Hebrew, like I'm old enough to do this, I'm, I'm old, you say I old. If you want to say I'm young, you say I young. If you, say, if you want to say I was young once, you can say I was young once. If you say I will be old someday, you can say I will be old. There's good words for that, but there's no word to say I am. When we translate it that way, we're translating a Greek term. It came into being many years later. What does God say then? God says this verb, ehye. It's something that happens in the future. It's an imperfect verb, which means that it describes something that's in motion, unfinished, open to the future, not closed up yet. It's usually translated by the English future tense. In other words, the phrase given as God's secret name, Eche Asher Eche, that's I am who I am. In Hebrew, it's Eche Asher Eche. If you're going to translate that literally, it translates as to be, I will be whatever I will be. I think it's a significant point. God is not something static or stable. I am whatever I am and I'll never change, right? No, God is completely understood and controlled, not by anyone else, but by God alone. I will be whatever I will be. God's free to decide whatever God is and whatever God will do. This is what we call the sovereignty of God, the very heart of God's identity. Who is God? Whatever God will be, that's God. It's not up to me, it's not up to you. It's not up to any books we read, any rules we try to create. God's God. But I think there's even more to learn from this secret name. As God says to Moses in verse 14, Say to the Israelites, Ehe, I will be, has sent me to you. Biblical scholars, especially one of my beloved mentors, Patrick Miller, reminds us here of verse 12. When Moses asked God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, God's answer was in Hebrew, ehye imak, I will be with you. And when Moses asked God, who are you? God's answer is, ehye, I will be, whatever I will be. It's the same word. Who am I? I will be with you. Who are you? I will be whatever I will be. Well, what is that? Well, the one thing we've learned from this text is that's, what will God be? God will be with you. That's the promise. I will be whatever I will be, and I will be with you. The conversation goes something like this. Who am I? I will be with you. Well, then who are you? 
I'll be whatever I want to be. But remember, I'm with you. So let me ask you, who are you then, if we apply this to ourselves? I think Exodus tells us that you are the one that God is with. And then who's God? God is the one who will be with you too. In one way, this sounds all like illogical nonsense. It's circular reasoning, right? But in another sense, it's the bedrock of truth and there's nothing deeper. This story teaches us that humans find our identities, our calls, our vocations, both communal and individual, in relationship with God. At your core, you're not your failures or your successes. You're not your earthly importance or your unimportance. You're not your moral uprightness or your most secret struggles, your best moments or your worst moments. Those, those aren't you. You are the one that God is with. Exodus 3 is, of course, known as the call of Moses. When he's not only called by name, it's where God also allows Moses to call God by God's name, which is the slippery thing, I'll be with you, but also where Moses is called to the mission. And we understand God only through relationship that we experience in community, which God refers to in verse 15. God says, you shall tell the people that Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you, Yahweh, the sacred name. That's a version of Ehye. Ehye means I will be. Yahweh means the one who makes be. The one who will make it be. That's God's secret name. It's not really a name, is it? Sort of, yes. But it's a point more than it is a name. God creates, sustains, restores our identities, which we only truly find in participating in God's mission to the world, bringing good news to those oppressed, displaced, despondent. That's the true name of God, and that's our true name too. God didn't abandon Moses because of his struggles. In fact, God worked through Moses precisely because of his struggles. Moses could speak to Pharaoh because he grew up in Pharaoh's court. Moses could lead the Hebrews because he was a descendant of Levi, eventually at least. Moses knew the importance of communal justice because he was fully aware of his identity as a sinner and even a criminal. Moses knew the way to the promised land because he wandered those wildernesses and even beyond the wilderness for many years. Moses was attentive to the aliens, the orphans, and the widows, like God told him to be, because he too had been a poor wanderer who was taken in by Jethro, a foreign father, and given a home there. That was Moses' second adoption, by the way. But Moses' inner tensions were not just problems. They were opportunities for God to work wonders. May we have eyes to see these same opportunities and gifts in ourselves and in the lives of others. If you've wrestled with your own purpose and identity, with your own sense of vocation and call, remember this. God's with you, and that's who you are. When Jesus wanted to reveal who he truly was on that mountain when he was transfigured, Moses and Elijah pop up out of nowhere. Because if Jesus wants to show us who he truly is, the only really way to do that is to show us who he's with. And Moses and Elijah matter because God is with them. Peter and James and John are supposed to take the hint. Y'all are knuckleheaded, broken-down fishermen, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're the ones that Jesus is with. And when Jesus wants to reveal his true identity, he does it by being with his followers. That makes me remember what Jesus said to Matthew. I said in Matthew 28, 20, he said to his disciples uh, after he had risen again, when he gave his disciples the Great Commission, they're called to be who they really were. Remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So be it. Amen. This podcast is a ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta. 
Come join us Sundays at 189 Church Street, Marietta, Georgia, or visit us online at fpcmarietta.org.